Hello, Hope Church family. I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue this series, Your Kingdom Come. And specifically, as we are in Matthew 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and we are calling this Kingdom Living. How do we live in this kingdom of God as representatives of the eternal kingdom that is to come? So again, Matthew chapter 5. Now, I want to start off by giving you a quote from either Ted Williams or Pete Rose has been credited to both baseball players. I prefer Pete Rose because as bad of the stuff that he did, he at least never played for the Boston Red Sox like Ted Williams. But they said that baseball is difficult because you have to hit a round ball with a round bat and do it squarely. And when I think of what we are called to do, and as I was walking this earlier this week, I had this thought that the Bible is the holy word of a holy God calling we sinners, we redeemed sinners, to be holy as he is holy, knowing full well we can't without the Holy Spirit transforming us with that same holy word. And I want to say that because I don't know that I've ever been as convicted and as having to question where I am spiritually as I have been in preparing for this message. And the only thing I could come back to is it's only because of him. It is only because if you have made Jesus the forgiver of your your sins and the, the, the leader of your life, then you are a redeemed sinner. And even that sounds like an oxymoron, that something that is so invaluable is now placed with the highest value and can do, accomplish amazing things because of God and his power through his son and through the working of the Holy Spirit to transform us more into his likeness. And it's a riddle. It's almost a tongue twister that we live out every day. So I wanted to start off there knowing that this is convicting, that this is crushing, but ultimately it is to draw us back to help us understand our desperate need for him. This first passage, uh, Matthew 5, starting in verse uh, 2 or 3 through 12, is called the Beatitudes. And I want you to know right up front, we are going to be asking you every week, we are going to be asking you in our studies moving forward to memorize this. Now, we want to memorize this as a church, but we also want you to take it home and we want you to memorize it with your children. Last night, I started reading this uh, as I put my son down to bed, which I'm now planning on doing as we continue to move forward. Because if it's one thing that I want ingrained in my child's head, if it's one thing that I can get him to remember is this. This is the answer, so to speak. This is the solution. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So start memorizing it. Uh, And if you turn this off, you can just work on it for a while, and that's totally fine. But this is called the Beatitudes. And really what Beatitudes mean is conditional blessings. If you thought about years ago, we went through the book of Proverbs, uh, or at least a couple Proverbs. And Proverbs, that's kind of how we phrased Proverbs, is it's these conditional blessings. It's if you do this, then this happens. And Proverbs is more of a chances are if you do this this happens whereas when jesus is speaking this is truth this is if you want to know this then this is what you do and so beatitudes is a continu- a conditional blessing but and these type of beatitudes existed in every type of literature in the world but this is specifically from jesus that this is truth this is conditional blessings that are promised to be true And so we could really call the beatitude God's guide to happiness. 
But happiness doesn't really do. Our English language does not capture all that that term blessed really means. In fact, I think you have to look up basically four different English words or phrases and pile them into one to even begin to comprehend what that means when God says blessed. And the, this is now, remember, this is the first, we talked about this last week, this is the first and greatest message preached by Jesus, and it begins with these repeated phrase meaning happiness. If we had to summarize blessedness into one word, it would be happiness, which fits well when we remember that the main message of the New Testament is the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel meaning good news of Jesus Christ. So good news should cause someone to be happy. However, blessedness is so much more. Blessedness really, it's characterized by happiness and being highly favored as by divine grace is its actual definition. Happiness and outward happiness and, and worldly happiness has to do with our outside circumstances most of the time, but blessedness has to do with inward, content, inward contentedness that is not affected by outward circumstances. Blessedness is a characteristic of God. Think of how many times the Psalms say, blessed is the Lord. Blessedness is a characteristic of God. It is who God is. God doesn't give us rules to follow so he can catch us and punish us. He is giving us the answer key of how to experience inner true happiness, which only comes through him and can be found in any circumstance in life, no matter what you are going through. Being blessed is an invitation to dwell in the characteristic of God, which can only happen through salvation in Christ and be operating with the Holy Spirit as your guide of transformation. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4 through 4 tells us this promise. He says, His divine power, God's divine power, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him, who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. We are constantly going to see this battle, this war being fought between what the world wants and what Jesus asks of us, specifically even in this passage. You're also going to see as we go through this, and we use so many other books of the Bible to basically use the Bible to interpret this passage of Jesus, and you'll see how many of the New Testament authors go back to this message by Jesus to explain how we then shall live, or how we then should live to properly represent the kingdom of God. But there is always this pull. There is always this pull between what Jesus is calling us to do and what the world says is actually important. And we find ourselves stuck in this battle, this war of trying to find happiness, trying to find being comfortable, trying to be content. And this is going to challenge our inner beings of, of truly examining where we are trying to find our happiness and our contentedness at. So join with me, if you will, Matthew chapter 5, and I'm actually going to read uh, verses 1 through 12, although we will not cover all of that today. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went, up to a, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what I'm going to do, and I want you to take notes, but the notes are right here in the text. And so point number one is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This has been a confusing text for many people for a long period of time. And I think it was confusing for people to hear what Jesus was saying because what he was saying was so against what they have come to know. What he was saying was also going against the religious leaders at that time and what they had been teaching. But Jesus is bringing them back, pointing them to the spirit of the law that was given. Jesus is pointing them to a way that he has designed for them. Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of life, Hebrews tells us, is pointing them to what is the most important. So he starts off, blessed are the poor in spirit. And first we have to go to the Greek and understand what that word poor means, because as in so many times in Greek, there are many words to describe something that we just have one word for in English, like love. Well, here, this poor is this a verb, and it means to shrink or cower or cringe. And in this culture, that is often what beggars would do. Uh, when you read about them begging alms for the poor or they're begging for anything, a lot of times they would actually cover their face as they put out their, their hand to hide the, their shame. There is another word that is used as poor that is used when Jesus describes uh, the widow who had two mites or two cents, if you will, who he says she is giving everything she has. And that is actually a different step. That poor use for the widow is he's saying like she at least has a grouping of resources, even though extremely minimal, there are some resources. The word that is used here for poor, as in blessed are the poor in spirit, is somebody who is bankrupt and has zero resources to their, their, their name. And it is really the hardest meaning of poor that there is in the Greek. They are without resources. They are completely bankrupt. So for us, when he says blessed are the poor in spirit, you can actually replace the word spiritually with spirit. And so for us, this means that we are to recognize our spiritual bankruptcy before God. To recognize who we really are at our core, who we are without God. And again, Jesus here is, is instructing his disciples, meaning the people that have already chosen to follow him. And that is who, if you are a believer, you are someone that has made Jesus the forgiver of your sins and leader of your life. That is you. You are a disciple of Christ. And so he's talking to you and me just as much as he was to the people sitting there on this mountainside with him. And he is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who understand their complete spiritual depravity and bankruptcy before an almighty God. You see, our ability to represent Christ and his kingdom begins with humility. That is why Jesus or or Paul would later write, take up your cross and not, hey, guys, do whatever makes you happy. Take up your cross daily and follow 
me. Paul didn't say, hey, whatever makes you happy, go do that. Why? Because there is an understanding that without God, who we truly are. We are spiritually bankrupt beggars who have done nothing good enough to deserve all that God has offered us. That should bring about a huge sense of humility to us when we recognize who we are. Not only that, but it will help us understand other people. A couple weeks ago, we talked about seeing people as Jesus sees them. When we fully recognize who we are in our spiritual bankruptcy, we can understand where other people are. And that humility comes into play because we start to say, how can anybody go on in life without having a relationship with God like now I have? We start to see the world with compassion. We start to see our neighbors and our coworkers and the people around us with compassion because we, we are in full remembrance of our spiritual bankruptcy without God. We start to see things and the world around us differently. And so what is the result? Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Only until we recognize our spiritual bankruptcy, our spiritual failing in the line of what God asks of us do, can we humble ourselves and call out to Jesus to forgive us. It isn't just a one-time thing. It is a continual thing for us to remember where we came from to go and help others who are still there. But the result is theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We are talking about kingdom living. When we live properly, when we represent the kingdom of heaven properly, it's being able to recognize that other people need into the kingdom as bad as we did. And we go and we do something about it. Go on in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So number two, blessed are those who mourn. Now, in a sense, this doesn't make any sense because he's saying, happy are those who are sad. Again, it's somewhat of an oxymoron of a saying. So, blessed are those who mourn. Here's what Jesus is saying. Godly mourning over our sin is done when we have a proper attitude of sin before God. Something that we are in constant battle with the world is making light of our sin. Uh, treating our sin as though this sin isn't as bad as that sin. Any sin is offensive to God. When we willingly participate in sin, we are saying the cross of Christ was no longer necessary for us. What keeps us from mourning our sin is our love of sin. We'd love to say that we hate sin, and I've had many conversations, and the phrase has escaped my mouth on more than one occasion, saying, oh, I hate my sin. And I would look at people and say, if you hate your sin, why do you keep doing it? If I told you I hate riding my bicycle, but every time you find me, I'm riding my bicycle, it's going to have a hard time believing me, especially when you know I own cars. But that's what our relationship is with our sin, or we learn to excuse our sin, and we become friends with our sin, and our sin follows us around or is always right there waiting for us. 
But when we seek out the holiness of God, this should bring into reality the effects of our sin, one to God, but also on our own lives. And so what he's saying, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who have an understanding of their sinful nature, blessed are those who are or happy are those who now have an understanding because when we start to understand the depravity of ourselves, we start to understand the holiness of God. You see, it is a very common and dangerous mistake to think of ourselves more holy than we are and to think of God less holy than he is. But that is what the Pharisees did at that time, and that is what we find ourselves often doing today. We think less of our sin, and in essence, we think less of God's holiness. We are trying to meet God on a middle ground that doesn't exist. We are sinners. He is holy. He calls us to be holy as he is. But we need Jesus' holiness and righteousness through the blood of him. We need that forgiveness through Jesus that can only be offered by Jesus and Jesus alone, which we can recognize when we realize our spiritual bankruptcy and our extreme dependency upon that righteousness that we can't do anything for ourselves and that we need Jesus to do. See, this is actually an order. The way that Jesus preaches through these Beatitudes is in order. It is a step-by-step process. It isn't randomly plucked out. First, we understand our complete depravity and our spiritual bankruptcy. Then we have an understanding of just how deadly and ruthless our sin is, and we mourn over that sin that we've done that has kept us separated from God. We mourn and, and, and run away from that sin that keeps us separated from a holy God, knowing that God has provided the way for us to no longer sin. But like I said, said, love of our sin keeps us from mourning our sin. We've talked at length about repentance over the last couple of months and what it looks like to leave behind sin and run to God, run to Jesus, the forgiver of our sins. And that still exists. When we properly mourn our sin, it calls us to repentance. 1 John 1, 9 through 10 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. The good news is, is as we mourn our sin, that should drive us to repentance, that should drive us to confession, where we can go before an all-holy God and confess our sins to Him, and we are welcomed back into that loving embrace, that only someone that we can now call out Abba, Father, or, or Daddy, to the Creator, the Almighty, Holy God Creator, as He welcomes us back into His arms. As our sins are forgiven when we confess them to him and he welcomes back us into that embrace that only he can do. So what is the result of the mourners? We are comforted. When we confess our sins, the great comforter Jesus is telling us that when we view our sin properly, we mourn. Mourning brings about repentance. Repentance brings about uh, confession. Confession brings about being comforted by the comforter that Jesus promised in John 14, 6. That same Greek word paraclete that is used to describe the Holy Spirit. John, or Jesus tells them in John 14, 6, don't worry when I leave, I'm sending a comforter to you, the Holy Spirit. 
so that when you mess up, why? Because you are human beings. You are a sheep because you're so dumb and you're going to keep, as Proverbs says, like a a dog returning to its own vomit. We will keep going back. So we will confess. Why? Romans 6.1, shall I keep on sinning that grace may abound? Meganoita, may it never be. We run to the great comforter. Jesus is called the great comforter. Jesus tells us that he is sending the great comforter and the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. Nothing can bring an inner happiness as fully as the great comforter and the transformation that the Holy Spirit brings in this process. So first, we recognize our spiritual bankruptcy. Second, we mourn over our sin, causing us to run to the great comforter, causing us to repent, confess, and be comforted as only an almighty God can comfort. That brings us to verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Number three, blessed are the meek. As I was studying this, something that I had similar, an author wrote, said, the humble Savior offers a meek kingdom. We've talked at length about how the view, even at this point, the, the reason that a lot of people were following Jesus was because they said, finally, this military or political leader is here to dominate the Romans. Finally, he's going to call up an army and we will stand victorious over this human oppressor that we face. But Jesus came in meekness. When Jesus started talking about himself as he is described in Isaiah and Psalm 22 as the suffering servant, not this mighty conqueror that he was pictured, Jesus was a mighty conqueror over sin and death, the problems that they actually needed help for but were unwilling to see or were unable to see. But Jesus was a humble Savior offering a meek kingdom. Most of us, if you're anything like me, and I'm not going to put that on you, we're not looking for a meek Savior. And we are definitely not looking to be part of a meek kingdom. We see meekness as weakness, and that couldn't be further from the truth. See, meekness is used to describe a soothing medicine or a soft breeze in this Greek language. It was also used of colts and other animals whose naturally wild spirits were broken by a trainer so they could do useful work. I don't know if you've ever seen a uh, young horse trying to be trained. It isn't fun. I've actually tried to ride some horses that weren't properly trained. They're incredibly powerful beings. And if not under control, they are very difficult to ride. So we as humans, we have a natural tendency to kick and jump and not want to do what we are being instructed to do. And so what meekness does, uh, meekness is not cowardice, it is not lack of conviction nor human niceness, but its courage, its strength, its conviction, and its pleasantness come from God, not from self. The spirit of meekness is the spirit of Christ who defended the glory of his Father but gave himself in sacrifice for others, leaving for us an example to follow. In fact, Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 19-25, he says, For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? 
But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus set this example that he could call down angels from heaven at any given time to rescue him. But he knew that his power, the meekness of Christ was demonstrated and that his power was controlled knowing that his blood must be shed so that we could have forgiveness of sins and that he must die to defeat death because it is what you and I so desperately needed. Not just that, but the people who were waiting for him to be this political or military leader needed that more than they did a political or military leader. They needed Christ's meekness for salvation from sin and death. So when we are called, blessed are the meek. Happiness comes to those who understand that, yes, God has gifted you, God has given you unbelievable abilities, no matter who you are. He's given you resources, and all of these things are to be used for his glory. But what we have a tendency to do is we use them for ourselves. Like a young animal, untrained, kicking and frolicking around, not knowing that there is work to be done that the training will do us good, that the training is how we live out our meekness. And so what is the result of meekness? The result is those who demonstrate their power under control for God's glory, not self-gain, will be co-heirs with Jesus in his reign of a new heaven and new earth. When he says they will inherit the earth, meaning that when Jesus comes and establishes his perfect kingdom here on earth, and there is so much more I would love to go into going backwards what we've already talked about. Humility, kingdom of heaven. Mourning over their sin, they will be comforted. Comforted in a way in this new heaven and new earth where there will be no tears, that there will be no sadness, that there will be joy simply, or not simply, but because of our mourning and confession and repentance of our sin. And now we will live in order in this meekness in order to have our power under control by the great God Almighty for his purpose so that we will be co-heirs with Jesus as we reign on earth for all eternity with him. Again, these are in continuing order. Humility. Mourning over our sin. Meekness. Power under control. Leads us to number six, or sorry, number four, verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Number four. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
trying to live for God's glory without righteousness through the constant feeding and sustenance of time spent learning his word and praying and meditation in him is like starving yourself before running a marathon. My wife ran a marathon uh, before we moved here several years ago, and I went with her, and I was easily in the worst shape of my entire life. And we went, and it was out on uh, the Outer Banks, and it was in the winter, so almost everything was shut down, but all the restaurants opened at that time, and they were offering all sorts of carbo-loading meals. Why? Because all these marathon runners and myself have descended upon the Outer Banks for to them to run a marathon. So we went to a restaurant that was serving all sorts of pasta, and I probably out-ate everybody there. And I, uh, people say, are you carbo-loading? I said, sure am. What are you running? Nothing. I just carbo-load just in case I have to run at some point. I want to make sure I've fully carbo-loaded every day of the week. So I carbo-loaded along with everybody else in this restaurant, and then I went and watched a race, eating a cinnamon bun and drinking a cup of coffee and realizing maybe things need to change in my life. That's a true story. But I also saw people at that time, and I remember seeing people as I worked at different college campuses or with different people who were starving themselves because of different eating disorders, because of how they viewed themselves, not as how God viewed them, for whatever different reason that brings these about, running to exhaustion while starving themselves. We do the same thing when we try to live our life spiritually pleasing God, but never going to him for sustenance. We wear ourselves out. Now again, running a marathon and starving yourselves, it can be done, but not for long. And I promise you, it never ends well. And so spiritually, when we are doing these first three steps, when we are understanding our, our, our sinfulness, when we are understanding that we must be humble, that we are understanding that we are spiritually bankrupt, when we understand how much our sin grieves God and how much it keeps us from understanding what the Spirit is calling us to do because we keep placing idols in our life or we keep allowing sin to overrule our relationship with God and, and we mourn that and now we are comforted by the great comfort and that leads us uh, into being meek because we can now understand the big picture of what God wants for us and so we allow him to take control of our life but that's not where it stops all of those things lead us to understanding how important it is that we are feeding and drinking from the everlasting bread as Jesus calls himself and drinking the everlasting water that Jesus refers to himself multiple times in the Gospels that that is where we truly need our sustenance to live in the way that God and Jesus here in this passage is calling us to live. That we hunger and thirst for righteousness. As the psalmist writes, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul should long after thee. Jesus declares that the deepest desire of every person ought to be to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That is the spirit-prompted desire that will lead a person to salvation and keep him strong and faithful once he is in the kingdom. It is also the only ambition that, when fulfilled, brings enduring happiness. That's not my quote. That is a quote I read, and I'm going to read it again. Jesus declares that the deepest desire of every person ought to be to hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
talked about this in Psalm 1. We talked about this in so many different passages. We started the discipleship series with Mike Seaver talking about how we must starve and thirst for God. That is the spirit-prompted desire that will lead a person to salvation and keep him strong and faithful once he is in the kingdom. It is also the only ambition that, when fulfilled, brings enduring happiness, blessedness. That joy and happiness that outward circumstances can't affect. But so often we run after the things of the world. As I said, they are in constant battle with each other. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. When we go through these first three Beatitudes, we recognize our spiritual bankruptcy and our desperate need of forgiveness. We understand our repentance. We understand our need for repentance because of recognizing God's holiness, which leads us to turn our resources over to God's control. And this leads us only to thirst and hunger for only what God has to offer, his righteousness that can only come through Jesus Christ. The result is they will be filled see, the things the world has to offer us that Solomon chased after and documented it beautifully in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says it is like chasing the wind. It is all vanity. James says life is a vapor. It is just here for a little bit and then it is gone. When we chase after righteousness, when that is our chief desire, we will be filled. The things of this world we chase after only tell us we can't have it, or it's not enough, or we need more. Jesus promises that our spiritual hunger can be satisfied, and yet which thing do we spend more time chasing and desiring after? The things of the world or the things of God? Do we spend more time saying, once I have this amount of money, then I'll be happy enough to serve God with my whole heart. Once I have this, once I have my status, my marital status changed to what I want, once I have children, then I will be satisfied and can look at the things of God. Once I have, and you fill in the blank, the job opportunity, the whatever status it is that you're chasing after, once I get those, then I will be able to desire the things of God properly. But everything on that worldly spectrum will just say it's not good enough. It's not good enough. It is that phantom that keeps telling you you need more, and yet we keep chasing after it. Jesus, the ruler of all things, says, no, chase after me and you will be filled. You will have satisfaction in my righteousness. Chase and desire after me and I will freely give it to you and you will be satisfied. I realized in studying for this passage that I should have broken it down more. That we could probably do word by word and been, been totally fine. 
There is so much more to this passage than what I can, but we're going to stop here for this week and get into now how do we apply this to our life. Something that we are going to be doing through this entire series as we go through the Sermon on the Mount is we are going to be going back and forth with the book of James. In fact, if you are in your book studies, as our book studies come to an end, we are now going to be starting in the next couple weeks a Bible study going through the book of James because it is believed by many theologians that the book of James was written solely as a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And you will see as we go through the Sermon on the Mount how much of the book of James goes hand in hand as a commentary on what Jesus is preaching. As we said, the book of Matthew seems to have been a, a manual for how do you start a church and how do you disciple? Probably the other way around. How do you disciple which should lead into a church happening? And James was written to the early churches almost explaining more in detail what this looks like. So when we look at these four different aspects that we talked about, this humility, this repentance, the power under God's control, and thirsting and desiring after God. Let's see what James says, starting in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. He says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask, God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. I don't know that I can accurately give you a better application than what we find in James 4, verses 1 through 10. So as homework this week, Go through this chapter, 4, 1 through 10. Journal through it. I'm asking you, but get a notebook and, and write down. Pray through these different application points. Pray through the different passages as we go through this. Ask God to reveal to you the areas of your life that need to change. That it starts with humility. That it starts with understanding that we are spiritually bankrupt without Jesus, that our only hope is in Jesus and the forgiveness that he offers that comes when we recognize we are spiritually bankrupt, when it comes when we recognize the, the shame that we are in and our desperate need for forgiveness, like the beggar trying to hide his face with his hand out, and Jesus doesn't just give us something, he picks us up. He forgives us. We go from being spiritually bankrupt to, as Ephesians says, overflowing with the abundant riches that only he can offer. Secondly, it's repentance. 
It's that mourning. It's that recognition of our sin. It's the recognition that God calls us to be holy as he is holy and that is only possible because of our Savior Jesus and the holy word of God that he has given us and the Holy Spirit he has given us to guide us. But it starts with our recognition and mourning and repentance and confession of our sin. That leads us to understanding just what a powerful God we serve. And so everything, our power needs to be put under God's control. Everything that we are, everything that we have, understanding that God designed you for a very specific reason, that God allowed you to go through all sorts of experiences in your life, both good or bad, to be used for His glory. And when we turn over our resources and our being and all of those things for God, it is like that foal that keeps kicking wildly, going into being a show horse for a better purpose to serve God and to operate in his kingdom. And that proper understanding of who we are, the proper understanding of our desperate need for a savior, the proper understanding of how devastating our sin is, the proper understanding how we truly glorify God by allowing him to be in control, the things we do are for his glory, should drive us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to hunger and thirst for God's word, to hunger and thirst for the Holy Spirit, to listen, to eliminate distractions in our lives so that we, as Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God, so that when I command you, when I guide you through the Holy Spirit, through the great comforter, through the great helper, to do something, you know what it is I'm calling you to do. Not for your glory, but for God's glory. As we do these things, we live how we have been designed and built and called to operate in the kingdom living Jesus wants from us, that Jesus desires from us. And as we do this together, as we join arm in arm, not just with Hope Church, but so many other churches in our area, we can demonstrate what living in the kingdom of God is like to our family, our co-workers, our neighbors, the other people in the sports leagues our kids are in, the school, whatever it is, we can demonstrate just what a powerful God we serve because he uses redeemed sinners like you and like me. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for this manual that we don't have to guess at what you want us to do. Lord, you have given us everything we need to live a life pleasing to you that you have given us everything that we need to please you, that you have given us every resource we need through your Son, your Spirit, your Word, the relationship that only you can give to us. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just walk away from these things that we are reading and seeing, but Lord, we would understand that we need to look in ourselves. We need to look into the mirror of your Word and change what needs to be changed. That there are things that need to be mourned over, confessed and repented from. So Lord, work in our hearts as only you can. And we do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.